The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Acts 7, verses 54 to 60. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at Him. But He full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to to Christ. Christ. Well, good morning, everybody. I've, uh, I've spent the day uh, going back and forth. Of course, I was here uh, speaking at the earlier service, like I'm about to do now. Uh, but I also got to zip over between services to the brand new Christ Pres Cool Springs location along Seaboard Lane and got to celebrate the grand opening with the Cool Springs congregation. Just a, a reminder that we're one church with several locations around the city uh, of Nashville and the most recent celebration Uh, is that grand opening for Cool Springs. So just uh, continue to pray for them and the witness they have in the Cool Springs area as part of us. It's been a great day there and uh, promises to be a great day here as we continue to open the scriptures and take a look at the book of Acts. And so uh, very first thing I'd like to say is that if you've been uh, in our home or around uh, our home life, you have probably met our dog Lulu And if you have met our dog Lulu, then you know that it is indisputable fact that Lulu is the kindest, friendliest creature alive. And yet, there's this strange thing that happens when we're taking her for a walk and somebody else in the neighborhood is taking their dog for a walk. Lulu, of course, being who she is, warmly greets the other dog every time, walks up to them says, you know, the dog equivalent of, hey, let's be friends. And the other dog always bites her head off. Not literally, but, but, but rages and gnashes its teeth at our incredibly kind-hearted dog. So this happened to Billy Graham, actually, once uh, when he was golfing with two other people. And there's a journalist that's waiting for Billy Graham and the other two people at the 18th Uh, hole, and uh, the journalist asked the first person golfing with Billy Graham, what was it like to play golf with Billy Graham? And and the man said, I'm sick and tired of Billy Graham shoving his religion down my throat, and he stormed off. And then the journalist, uh, a little bit perplexed by this, asked the second person that was golfing with Billy Graham, what did Billy Graham say that made this other person so upset? How did he shove his religion down your throat? And, And the guy said he didn't say a thing about religion. He was just kind and friendly and, and, you know, this gracious man that we know him to be. And this is an illustration 
of how we as human beings can, can actually do what the dogs do. We, we can look at the kindest expression of the image of God and gnash our teeth at it and lash our teeth out at it, and this is precisely what's happening with history's first recorded Christian martyr, Stephen. A little bit of background here. If, if we go back a couple of chapters, the beginning of chapter 6, we see that Stephen is one of the first seven deacons in the history of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, deacons are kind-hearted people with a mercy orientation, and their, their particular calling and passion is to serve those who are poor, to, to, to show up for those who are in a weak position, who, those who are living their lives on the margins as outsiders. Uh, that's what the deacons are about, and that's what Stephen is about. And it says at the very beginning of chapter 6 that, that Stephen, especially among the deacons, was full of grace and power because of this kind-hearted disposition of his and his deep knowledge of Scripture. But he was, as we can see from the text today, hated and regarded as an outsider, kind man though he was. One reason was that he was a Greek, and everybody knew at that time to, 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 to be on the inside of the religious community, you couldn't be a Gentile. He was also regarded by the gatekeepers of the religious communities as a threat. It says, again, early in chapter 6, that the gatekeepers could not withstand the wisdom of the Holy Spirit with which Stephen was speaking. And so they secretly instigated false witnesses against him who accused him of things that he didn't do, speak against the law of Moses, speak against Moses himself. They set up a kangaroo court with no due process, with no justice, because they wanted to eliminate him because he was a threat. And it says here that the council or the Sanhedrin, the, the people with a lot of power, the elites, it says that when they looked at him, they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then all of chapter 7, we see Stephen, this Greek man from memory, reciting the Jewish scriptures from the Old Testament starting, you know, way back with the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and he basically recounts the entire Old Testament history of the law and the prophets, showing utmost respect for Moses and utmost respect for the law. And he says this to the Sanhedrin and to the other religious gatekeepers, you've missed the entire point of the scriptures that you've known all of your life. Because all of them point to Jesus Christ. Not only this, not only are you missing Jesus Christ, you killed him. You crucified him. You gnashed your teeth at him just like you gnashed your teeth at me today. And then they eliminated him. They eliminated him because he was experienced by them uh, in the same way that the misfit in Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find experienced Jesus. When misfit said, Jesus has thrown everything off balance. And what we've got here is Stephen in the name of Jesus throwing everything off balance for people steeped in religious tradition, steeped in self-righteousness, steeped in culture as opposed to Scripture. So for the next few minutes, we're going to take a look at Stephen, 
and why people rage at him. And the reason why people rage at him is that he is a beautiful representative of Jesus Christ, specifically as prophet, priest, and king. And so their hatred for him beneath that is really a hatred for Christ and a resistance to the fact that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So first, he's a prophet who exposes bad religion. One of the ways that, that, that you can recognize bad religion is that bad religion always has an outsider-insider dynamic. There's us and there's them. There are boundaries of belonging, and we see that clearly even in just the way that they treat Stephen and the reasons for it. First, he's an ethnic outsider, right? He's a, he's a Gentile, uh, and they're not. He's also a social outsider. The, the members of Sanhedrin, the, gate, he, the gatekeepers here, they are people of wealth, they're people of, of great privilege, they're people of great power, uh, and they live by the um, the posture or by a posture of elitism. And Stephen's a deacon, right? He lives his life among the weak and the poor and the marginalized. He's also an ideological outsider. They're entrenched in their tradition and in their ethnocentric culture and in their nationalistic culture, and he's steeped in the Scriptures. And he's analyzing everything about culture in light of the Scripture, whereas they're analyzing everything about Scripture in light of their culture. He's standing under the Word of God. They're standing on top of it as if they had the authority to revise it. And he's looking at the Scripture to revise him and also to revise his critics. You expect this in the world, this whole insider-outsider thing. We, we, we've come to expect it, right? So, so Patty and I went on a, a couple's date with some other people at a fairly well-known restaurant uh, in a bougie area of Nashville. We were, in, we, we were part of this, this wonderful dinner. We were celebrating something, and so we're like, oh, let's all splurge. And Patty and I were the first people to get there. And the reservation was under our name, and, and, and we said, you know, we're Scott and Patty Sauls. Our reservation is for a party of this many people, and, you know, we're, we're about three minutes early. Um, and, and the people at the desk said, just so you know, you have one hour, and then you're going to have to leave because we're going to need your table, you know, an hour after you get here. And this is one of those restaurants where ordinarily you'd spend an hour and a half to two, two hours or so just kind of lingering, and we were taken off guard by that. And then the rest of our party started to show up, and it turned out that one of the couples in our party was a familiar couple to the people in the restaurant. And because that familiar couple was with us, everything changed. No more time limit. Uh, they, they originally assigned the intern to us, and they said, no, no more intern for you. You not only get our best waiter, you get our three best waiters our three best servers, and they lingered, and they threw out the red carpet for our whole group. Everything changed because of two people that happened to be in our party who were pretty embarrassed themselves that the game changed because of them. Churches are not immune from this kind of insider-outsider reality. Tim Keller, well-known New York City pastor wrote this. 
He said, people in churches can sometimes be even more touchy, more prone to bicker, more prone to gossip, more prone to bite and devour each other than your average YMCA. The average non-Christian body, he says, can be far more tolerant, more loving, far less biting, far less scratching, far less devouring, angry, and gossipy than the average Christian community. It's a fact, he says. Why is this? He goes on to say it's because of the iniquity of our holy things. And what he means is it's because of the things that we look to to, 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 to help us see ourselves as being virtuous, as being superior, as being better than, as being more ethical, more moral, more insider than someone else. He says it's especially a dynamic in religious communities that have lost touch with the gospel. The iniquity of your holy things. The gatekeepers here, they pride themselves on their race, on their religious traditions, and on their expressions of piety. You see Jesus confronting this in the Sermon on the Mount, which is part of what got Jesus killed. And the truth is that beneath these holy things that, 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 that people look to, that religious people look to, 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 to credential themselves, despite the outward appearance, what's really going on in the inside is, is something very egocentric. It's a fragile ego. I need something to put out there to present myself as appearing better than. And we see this in, in one of Jesus' very well-known parables in Luke chapter 18, where it says there's a Pharisee who's one of the religious gatekeepers of the day, and it literally says in the original Greek, he prays to himself. It's almost as if he's using prayer as a means to give himself a pep talk to convince himself that he is superior. And he says, thank you, my God, and then he puts out, you know, his holy things. I'm not like other men. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not an evildoer. I'm not a tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. Look at me. And <clears throat> Remarkably, he mentions in his prayer, he mentions God one time, and he mentions himself eight times, which is about something other than God. It's about something other than worship. It's about something other than prayer. He is pep-talking himself out loud in ways that so many of us pep-talk ourselves quietly. At least I'm not like this. At least I am like that the iniquity of our holy things. And what's, what necessarily happens if we're, if we're anchoring our identity in something other than Christ and other than the gospel is that the, the, the fruit of that is going to be a disdain for other people. There's going to be an insider-outsider dynamic in our own hearts. And you know, back then, it was actually legal on religious grounds to assassinate somebody, which is precisely what they do to Stephen. It's what, what happens to Christ later on. In a culture like ours where you get you're thrown behind bars or you, you may even get executed for assassinating somebody without cause, we assassinate each other's character instead. If we can't take down somebody's body, we, we'll try to take down their good name. It's everywhere. You know, Pascal says that this is the thing that, that separates Christianity and the gospel from all forms of religion. Because all forms of religion fail to deal adequately with both pride and despair at the same time. 
With religion, you're, you're, you're either going to be led into pride because you think you're superior, because you think you're winning at whatever the game is. You think that, that you're, you're obeying whatever the, the rules and the cultural codes are and the religious norms are. You, you think that you're adhering to them better than somebody else. And so you'll have this superiority about you and you'll look down on others. Or you may be one of those unlucky people who fails to live up to the mark who fails to, to cross the boundary lines uh, um, in an acceptable way to the religious community or the tribe, and, and so you feel self-loathing instead or despair. In comes the gospel, and, 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 and it does away with both pride and despair. You know, this takes us back to, you know, those famous words from Jack Miller, cheer up. Because of two things. Number one, to your pride, you're worse than you think. So cheer up. You can be honest about how far you fall short of the glory of God. It's so freeing to be able to say, pressure's off me. I'm a mess. I'm a wreck. That's, why, that's actually one of the reasons why I'm a Christian is because I've recognized God has opened my eyes to the fact that I will never measure up to the bar. I'm free because Jesus has forgiven and cleansed and substituted himself for me in that regard. And at the same time, the gospel frees you from self-loathing. It frees you from despair of falling short because what you're not, Jesus was for you. He lived a perfect life. He died a, a substitutionary death. He, he paid the penalty for your sin and for your unrighteousness and for your failure to live up. And so both pride and despair are taken care of under Christ in ways that religion never can. So he's a prophet who is, exposes bad religion, but he's also a priest who's kind to everybody. So Stephen is pushed to the outside here, and he's pushed to the outside in a very aggressive, nasty, hurtful, injurious way. And what's so remarkable here is the way that he responds. He doesn't strike back. He doesn't rage at those who are raging at him. You know, he does speak truth to them as a prophet, which we just looked at. You know, the, the, the ministry of the prophet is, is a ministry of disruption, to agitate the status quo in order to drive people back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He throws everything off balance. But here he's also the priest. The priest is somebody who, who majors in the ministry of mercy. The priest is the person who wins hearts with kindness, love, and, and, and at times, as in this case, non-retaliatory grace. Responds to hatred with love. He responds to injury with pardon, to, to pull some words out of, you know, the prayer of St. Francis that we often uh, recite here in our liturgy. You know, Acts chapter 6, you know, we see, we see Stephen pictured as being among the very first deacons, and, you know, the deacons are, are called to meet the material needs uh, within their midst uh, that are associated with poverty, isolation, hunger, and other forms of vulnerability. Acts chapter 7, Stephen emerges also as an evangelist, as somebody who 
preaches the truth of Christ and, and, and demonstrates how all of the truth of Scripture is about Christ and points us to Christ and the saving work of Christ, which everybody needs. And, and part of how Stephen's Christ-centered ministry reveals itself is the way that he prays for his own killers in love. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Non-retaliatory grace. And, and, and then in Act, Acts chapter 8, as well as this chapter, we see that among those people that he is praying for, among those who are, who are assassinating him, is a man named Saul of Tarsus, who's actually presiding over the whole event. And it says that Saul is there giving approval to Stephen's death, and, and those who are throwing stones at Stephen, it says they lay their garments at Saul's feet. Are they stripping naked? No. But it, it, it's, it, picture the image of an athlete who's about to go into, you know, a track meet or, or a basketball game or volleyball. They take off their outer garments so that the, the, all that's left is the athletic gear, right? They, they take off the warm-up suit. They, they throw it down somewhere or hang it up somewhere, and, and, and all that's left is their essential clothing. This is like an athletic event that these people are savoring. An opportunity to destroy somebody in the name of God. So much so that they're breaking a sweat. You know, let us at them. Gnashing their teeth. Licking their chops. Saul's giving approval to his death. Even as Stephen is praying for Saul and the others, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And then in Acts, Acts chapter 9, remarkably... We see the answer, the first answer to Stephen's prayer that the Lord would not hold it against him is when Saul of Tarsus is converted to faith in Christ. And Christ says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So identified as Jesus with Stephen's suffering that it's as if it's being done to Christ himself. And Saul of Tarsus becomes a new man having met the risen Christ and we get Paul the Apostle from that and a third of the New Testament, remarkably. Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9 becomes God's yes to Stephen's dying prayer in Acts chapter 7. It's interesting that the, the word for martyr in the original Greek is interchangeable with the word witness. So often, not only in the Bible, but, but, but throughout history, the most fruitful Christian witness has been forgiveness in the face of opposition, kindness in the face of antagonism, love in the face of hatred and discord. You know, we, we all want this kind of person in our lives, right? This kind of person who's just like our dog Lulu, who just, you, you bite her head off, but then she just forgives and forgives and forgives and just warmly approaches you again and again and again, inviting friendship, inviting belonging. We all want those people in our lives. That's why Ted Lasso is so popular, right? That's why Mr. Rogers is so popular again in this climate of outrage that we're in. The problem with Ted Lasso is that Ted Lasso is fiction. But is he? You all may have seen this a couple of weeks ago. Jason Sudeikis, who plays Ted Lasso in the Ted Lasso series, um, is on Saturday Night Live and in his comedic monologue, he says, you know, I'm really surprised about the success of the show Ted Lasso, because Ted Lasso is about two things that Americans hate. 
Soccer and kindness. I think, you know, this is humor, right? And I also think it's self-defeating. You know, if any of you were at the opening game of the Nashville Soccer Club, they didn't even have a name yet. But the interest was so significant that they had to have it at Nissan Stadium where the Titans play, and it was full all the way to the rafters. So Americans don't hate soccer any more than Americans hate kindness. We don't hate kindness. We're just afraid sometimes to be kind because we don't want our heads to get bitten off. The power of the Holy Spirit gives Stephen and us an inner resource to become this kind of person. This is a core feature of Christian discipleship, non-retaliatory grace. How's it working out? How's it going? Refusal to actively participate in outrage culture. How's it going, followers of Jesus? He's a prophet who exposes bad religion. He's a priest who is kind to everyone. And in so doing, he shows himself to be a king who conquers by being conquered. Here's the irony. The, the, the people who want all the status, right? People who have all the status and want to keep the status and want to protect their status disqualify themselves by their zeal to hold on to status which exceeds their zeal to hold on to what's true. They doctor up a kangaroo court with false witnesses to discredit this biblical man because they care about reputation more than they care about truth. They care about image and position more than they care about Christ. It's the most dangerous place a person can be. They disqualify themselves as kings by acting like kings. Meanwhile, Stephen becomes a king by his refusal to act like a king. It says that he calls out, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he falls to his knees with even greater intensity and cries out in a loud voice, it says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them and then he died. If you are a student of Scripture, these words should sound very familiar because these are precisely the words that Jesus prayed from the cross. And these are precisely the words that somebody steeped in Scripture like Stephen would have remembered in a moment like this, along with other words Jesus spoke, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. And that's precisely what happens. It's precisely what happens. This whole non-retribution thing, it's really possible, you guys. So, so it's a friend of ours from our New York City days who was fired from his job and then smeared in his industry, making him unemployable. And, and much like Stephen, false witnesses were recruited to discredit this man. And I can remember as, as, as he was in a very low point. He's married, had three kids in a very expensive city with no job. 
and with no job opportunity in his area of expertise. And I, I, I snuck up behind him at the beginning of church one Sunday, and I said, look, how about you and I go to your old office building in the middle of the night tonight? I'll bring the torches, and we can set the place on fire. Right? And he's like, two things. Number one, thank you for your empathy. Number two, and then he looked me square in the eye, serious as a heart attack, and said these words, no retribution. No retribution. Sometimes you meet people for whom the world is not worthy. How do you become that kind of person? The clue is right here. Stephen fixes his gaze into heaven and saw the Lord standing. Standing. Who stands? A defense attorney stands before the judge, as Jesus always stands before the Father for his people, defending us, guilty though we may be. Defending Stephen, guilty though he may be. There's also the prosecutor who stands against perpetrators of untruth and injustice, which is also what's happening. It's as if Jesus is communicating to Stephen, let there be no mistake, you are not the one on trial here. Those who are seeking to assassinate your character and your person, those are the people who are on trial right here. Right now, you're the only one who sees it, but one day all the world will understand who's really on trial here. Keep your gaze fixed on Christ, the Lord would say to Stephen. The other thing about standing is it's a posture of honor, right? We go to a concert, we stand for the music out of respect for the band and out of respect for for the art form. In a court, the judge enters the room and somebody says, all rise, and everybody rises out of respect for the honorable judge. A dignitary enters the room, everybody stands. If you're in the South, a woman shows up at the table and all the Southern gentlemen stand out of respect and honor for her. When we sing songs of worship, we stand. Here we have Jesus... We have everything reversed. We have Jesus again throwing everything out of whack. We have the Holy One standing up for a sinner. Behold the honorable Stephen. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You mess with him, you got to go through me. It's not going to work out well for you. He's not on trial. You're on trial. Why do you persecute me? But even then, Jesus would demonstrate mercy to Saul of Tarsus, who's not only among the scoffers, he's presiding over the whole thing. That's the gospel that Stephen understood. And that is what Stephen had, the awareness that Christ had prayed about him, about Stephen, Lord, do not hold this against him. And Stephen was a yes to Jesus' prayer in the same way that Saul of Tarsus became a yes to Stephen's prayer so that we could all have a seat at the table where there's no time limit, it costs you nothing except for your pride and your self-loathing. You've got to give both of those things up. That's what it costs for you 
to dine at the most expensive table in the history of the world. You've got to give up your pride, and you've got to give up your self-loathing. You've got to cheer up because you're worse than you think, and you're more loved than you think in Christ. Helen Cummings, one of the longtime members of our church, observed once to me in a private conversation, isn't it remarkable that when we come around the Lord's table, the only menu that has the prices on it is the one that Jesus is holding? Come without cost to the table of grace, and there's no time limit because there's somebody at the table that's familiar to the owner of the table and to the owner of the feast because of Christ. You don't just get crumbs from the table, you get a seat at the table. You don't just get acknowledged, you get honored. When you come to the table, imagine Jesus standing for you because that's precisely what this is. It's a great reversal. It's what grace looks like. You're given the status of a royal. You are given the red carpet. Not because you deserve it, but because Jesus has achieved it for you. And so that's our introduction to the Lord's Supper. And what a glorious introduction. The most expensive meal that you will ever have, and it costs you nothing.